So I hope by now in the retreat with your strong mindfulness and clear comprehension that you realize that the retreat is ending tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) And that's when the real retreat begins, right? And and what I'd like to offer you this, this evening is just some reflections on how to carry some of these teachings of emptiness forward, how they might inform that, uh, that unreal world out there. And what I'd like to begin is uh, to begin with a haiku from Isa, who was a 18th, 19th century haiku poet from Japan, one of the, the, the great haiku poets, really held in high esteem up there next to Basho. And the uh, IQ that I want to share with you was a, uh, a a poem that he had written. Yeah, I, th- I think it was a, a poem that he'd written after his actually second child had died. So his firstborn with his wife had died and then the second child had died. And I want to point out, you know, the, the pain of losing a child, nothing like it have someone we expect to die after us, dies before us. So he wrote these, these short lines. The world of dew is only the world of dew. And yet, The world of dew is only the world of dew, and yet that's what it is. This world of of dew is just the world of dew. There's that dew on the grass in the morning, and then it it just evaporates. This is this understanding of there's there's no self inherent existence. There's no solidity to any part of experience. This is what we've been exploring this entire retreat, trying to get a feeling sense of that, the lack of solidity. Exploring things like the five aggregates or these three characteristics of impermanence, unreliability, and not-self. This is... That's the letting go of the sack. Oh, it's not as solid as I thought it was. And yet, and yet, we experience loss. It, it hurts so much. It fills our eyes with tears. And yet, we experience all kinds of troubles and difficulties and challenges in that unreal world. Have you noticed that? As I mentioned in my last talk, I know your burden's heavy as you wheel it through the night. The guru says it's empty, but that doesn't mean it's light. So how do you navigate this conventional world informed by emptiness? How do you really come up to these inevitable challenges of of simply being a human being? coming face to face with that troubled world out there, 
yet beautiful, but troubled. With it being informed with what we've been exploring, this, this sense of emptiness, that it's not as real as you make it out to be. There's nothing solid behind it. It's all dependently originated. Yeah, so how do you navigate that world? I don't know. (laughs) I really don't, I have no idea. And I was thinking, this is, what a horrible start for a talk, right? <laughs> you come, you're ready for a Dharma talk. Great light set up with the haiku, with the question, and then I let you know the truth, huh? But I, I, I really don't. I, I really don't have any idea. And I want to point out that I feel like that's something that I've gotten from these teachings of emptiness to really get that I have no idea and I don't know. Because all the things I can offer you, they're just words and concepts. They're, they're fabrications of the mind. Just a construction. You know, even this idea that some fixed concept that I can say to you is going to be the answer in terms of having, having how to navigate that fluid world out there. I'd be a little crazy if I said something other than, I don't know. I, I really don't have an idea that can capture that. I really don't have the answers. And there's something relieving about that when I really get that. Because it comes with seeing that the, the world is not as real as I make it out to be, is not as solid as I make it out to be. And, and I found that there is something so important about not knowing. Because what I notice is that this mind, it, it so wants to know in a rigid, grasping kind of way. It wants the answer. It's hoping that there'll be some kind of answer out there that's going to make it so much easier. And I know this. I spent years studying philosophy. <laughs> as if I was going to find the answer, the, the, the kind of the, the construct that was going to solve it all for me. And maybe your mind's like my mind, wanting some kind of coherent understanding of that world. If I can all get it down so it just at least sounds coherent. And, and sometimes, I think that can be a wonderful thing, sometimes on retreat what I love to do is when I have that burning question, What does that feel like? What's that experience like? Because often what I find is that there's some kind of dis-ease in my system, and I'm hoping if I get an answer to it, there'll be some kind of settling that will bring some kind of satisfaction. Sometimes those answers feel like that. They give you a little bit of that satisfaction, but then it goes. Zen story about this. There was a uh, a monk, uh, Fayan, this is before he was a Zen master, and he was um, on pilgrimage, and he was going from temple to temple with some other monks. 
and they came upon this hermit by the name of Dizong. And Dizong comes out of his hermitage and asks Fayan, uh, where are you going? You know, you know, this is a Zen story, so Dizong is asking probably something much more than where you're going, but one of those testing questions. And Fayan, he gives a great answer. He says, on pilgrimage, wherever my feet take me. Yeah, but what do you expect from pilgrimage? Is what Dizong asks Fayan. And Fayan says, I don't know. And Dizong says, ah, ah, not knowing is most intimate. The not knowing that is most intimate. I think that what can, is something that can arise from this understanding of emptiness. And I want to point out that this is not the not knowing of ignorance. There's a, there's a place to get a sense of the practice, to understand how to move forward. It's rather the not knowing of openness, that I might have a sense of moving forward, but I know it's not the complete picture because I have a sense that it's constructed, that it's fabricated. I still use it, right? I, I have a sense of picking up those concepts, those ideas. I have a sense of that, but I know that I truly don't know at the same time. I think this is, this is something that we can get from this teaching of, of emptiness, which is so important for that unreal world out there. And I want to point out, when I read this story about Fayan, my feeling is he's not trying to be all Zen and everything. <laughs> he's just being honest. I'm on pilgrimage, and when you ask me what I expect from pilgrimage, I actually don't have any idea. I don't know. He's just being honest about, about what he's sensing, about how he's situated in the world about what it is to use language and have and navigate with fabrications. And what I want to point out about Fayan is the kind of confidence it takes not to know, yet still go on pilgrimage, to still move forward. So it's not just about not knowing, it's about going wherever your feet take you on pilgrimage. It's about treading this path of the Dharma. I think this is what we can get a sense of this story, this wisdom, a, a kind of a seeing clearly that we're cultivating through this practice. And through that, there can be this not knowing, the not knowing of openness that allows us to move forward. And it's from there that action and understanding, a different kind of understanding arises. For me, I think more of what I get out of this path, truly, is it's more like um, riding a bike in the sense of, I find it such so wild, it's such a trip that my body can stay on a bike and I have no idea how that happens. I really don't. Like, I don't, I do not understand that. There is no way that I could explain to you in words how I know how to stay on a bike. Have you ever noticed that? You get on a bike and there you know it somehow. 
But I, I'm sure there's books written about it, right? There's probably all kinds of books written about how to stay on a bike, about what's happening with your proprioception and balance and eyes and all that complicated stuff. But it's so nice to realize I don't need to know any of that. But there's a feeling sense of staying on the bike or swimming. Maybe some of you know what, what that's like. Somebody, isn't it amazing? Somebody can throw you in a, 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 um, a body of water and then all of a sudden your body knows how to make sure you don't drown. And again, I don't know how that works. But somehow there's a, there's a deeper knowing that's also so fluid. Right? There's so much responsivity on a bike or swimming that's there. But I don't have it figured out. I have no idea about it. I actually don't have the answer. And yet, there it is. And, and I think, really, I, 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 that's why I like to point out that I, I don't have the answer. I have no idea what to tell you, but I do want to share some things about staying on the bike. As Sally mentioned it, maybe this morning, about that quote from Bhikkhu Bodhi. Just all we need to do is to begin and to continue. Can you continue to be on this bike of, and you can keep it simple, just simply being present, the willingness to show up for your experience so that seeing clearly can start to arise. And it's tricky with these minds and that challenging world out there. I remember I was uh, working with a woman, I I used to do um, more than I do now, uh, trauma work with people. And I was working with this woman who was really struggling with uh, the experience with her mother. Her mother being this, this person who was actually so wonderful in her life in so many different ways. And at the same time, so incredibly horrible in unimaginable ways. And so challenging to navigate that, to have a caregiver like that. And I remember we got to this point of really sensing into this and, and she kind of explained, you know, it's so challenging for me because I don't know how to, how to hold her in one way. And there was the insight, right? The insight, oh, the attempt to hold another in one way. The attempt to have the answer in some kind of manner the rigid answer, the fixed answer. It's so much more complex than that. And it can get confusing, you know, with such a person, should I have fierce compassion of a strong, clear boundaries, or should I have soft compassion of always being there for them? What should I stand on in terms of the answer? What would it be like to continue to, conti- to commit to staying on that bike to get a feeling of that responsivity? As Guy said about the, really about the, the nature, the, the really fundamental nature of awareness, that, that when we really sense into that, it's ceaseless, ceaselessly responsive. Not coming from a place of, I have the answer, the concept, but somewhere else. And I have to be aware of that because I have a mind that wants the one answer. I can so feel that. And it's so wonderful to be sensitive to that. And I wanted to share this all with you because 
I want to just acknowledge the, the obvious. You're entering into a complex and challenging world out there. We all have our own challenges. And yet, and yet there's loss, there's challenge. And it's not only the world out there. I mean, let's be honest about it. It's these minds. Man, maybe you've learned that from the last eight days or whatever it's been. <laughs> it can be so challenging in there. And it's so important in that sense also not to hold yourself in one way. So much complexity here. It can be so harsh to, to confine ourselves in that way. So how to act in a world that there's not one answer. How to move forward from this openness of not knowing, to have more of this knowing, the knowing that comes from riding a bike or swimming, so that we can meet this fluid, unreal world out there. And what's important for me, and this, this goes for both for ethics, because ethics is such an important aspect of what we do, quote unquote, out there, just as it is here, but also with meditation, is I find it that it's very important for me to take it out of the realm of this kind of narrow sense of right and wrong. It's, it's like riding, riding a bike. It's not like sometimes I'm getting it right and sometimes I'm getting it wrong. Sometimes I have more skill when I'm riding the bike and sometimes less skill. Really, this is what the, the, the word that the, the Buddha was using. For example, last night, guy shared with us so beautifully the importance of cultivating the wholesome in the sense of karma, that actions have consequences. The, 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 really, that's, that's the heart of what we're doing here. This word wholesome in Pali is kusala, which could actually be translated as skill, a skill that you'd use when you're engaging in some art. And then the opposite, akusala, when you're not as skilled. And the Buddha is very clear about this. He, he says, develop what is skillful, practitioners. It is actually possible to develop what is skillful. If it were not possible develop, to develop what is skillful, I would not say to you, develop what is skillful. But because it is possible to develop what is skillful, I say to you, develop what is skillful. And if this development of what is skillful were conducive to harm and pain, I would not say to you, develop what is skillful. But because this development of what is skillful is conducive to benefit and to pleasure, such, such an interesting word, or contentment, I say to you, develop what is skillful. And this is what we've been doing on this retreat. Cultivating what's skillful. Mindfulness and compassion. Kindness, hopefully the quality of generosity. The quality of tranquility. The quality of patience. All of these skills. So important to remember that it's a skill and not this rigid idea of right and wrong. And, and I just want to be really clear about this because we can use these words of, in, in, of right and wrong in different contexts that might be very useful. So what I mean is it's this realm, well, maybe we can do a little, we'll do a little thought experiment, see how it goes. So what I want you to imagine, you can even go inside and do this. 
is it's very simple. 4 plus 4 equals, and you get a sense of what the number comes up. 4 plus 4 equals. I'll give you the answer. 4 plus 4 equals 8. So if, if the number 8 came up in your mind, you got the right answer. But if you got 7 or 9, I know that this can be difficult to hear, but you got the wrong answer. <laughs> that's, that's the world of mathematics, of addition and subtraction. Of subtraction. There's actually a right answer and there's a wrong answer to 4 plus 4 equals 8, 4, 4 plus 4. But what my mind does is it's like when I start to cultivate the skill, which is going to be an important skill out there, of mindful speech, of wise speech, I can feel like that's the world of, of wise speech, that it's somehow the same world of 4 plus 4 equals 8, that there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer. But it doesn't work that way. It's more like an art. Some days I'm more skillful and some days less skillful. It reminds me in a, you can say in a past life, it feels like a past life. I used to play clarinet in a jazz band. It was so much fun. <laughs> it was a blast. And some nights or some rehearsals, it felt like I could feel the skill. I was on. There was a f- more of a feeling sense of my other band members like the, 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 just a, a feeling sense, more of a sense of the fluidity and the improvisation. And I would say there, would be, there was more skill on those nights. And other nights, less skillful, eh? you know, a little bit off here and there. But it wasn't like one night I was right and one night I was wrong. Something more refined than that. And this is important, for example, with wise speech. If it's in that realm, then when I'm not as skillful, then it's so interesting, right? It's like, oh, interesting, I can learn from this. Oh, and when I'm more skillful, it's not like, oh, I'm such a great person. It's, oh, what can I learn from this? What, what, was, what was so fluid about this? How was I in tune with the rest of the band here? How was I out of tune? How was I in rhythm or out of rhythm? This is how we hold this. this, this is how it fits so much with kind of riding the bike, rather than the rigidity of really getting so hooked on really this grasping the conventional. This too is something I think we learn from this practice, this understanding of emptiness. So I'm not going to be holding on to it that tightly, that narrowly, that rigidly. So some more reminders that might be helpful for that world out there. Maybe not, I don't know, (laughs) right? I have no idea. And it's it's an image that uh, Susie shared with us, which I I too appreciate. She shared with us this, the image of Indra's net, which you might have remembered. Remember that image she gave us of of that one way of getting a sense of actually emptiness. emerges a little bit later on in Buddhism as of Indra's net is there's this net that, that goes out on endlessly. And at each node, she was saying that there's this jewel. And if you were to look in one jewel, you could see reflected in that one jewel all the other jewels in the net. So in, in, in one jewel, you can see all the other jewels. You go to another jewel, you could see all the other jewels. 
And in, in some ways, this is this quality of interdependence. It's trying to describe the interdependent quality of experience. And this is how, at least is, is what's, what's uh, one rendition of it, of how to describe this conventional world that is empty in essence. It's not independent things. It's the, it's the movement, it's the fluidity of interdependence. And this, uh, this image comes from a, a Mahayana uh, text called the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Flower Garland Sutra, which really gained a lot of momentum in, in China during the Tang Dynasty. Uh, with a kind of Buddhism called Huayan Buddhism. Let me just aside because I just find it so interesting. And I, I feel grateful for uh, one Huayan practitioner, uh, Fazang, who is uh, known to really give momentum to Huayan Buddhism, which so greatly influenced all the Buddhism that came after that, like uh, Chan and Zen, Zen Buddhism and the, the Buddhism that you find in Vietnam and Korea and Japan, and then made full circle and I think is even influence Theravada, because it really is a, you know, hopefully you'll hear it, it fits, I think, in, in some ways with early Buddhism so well. And and uh, quite interesting, you know, he was, uh, he was not Han Chinese. He lived, uh, even though he lived in, in what you could call Han, Han China during that time, um, his family had come from a different area that's now what would be called Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. And so here he is living in the midst of quite a different culture. And not only that, his sub- main supporter was uh, this empress, Empress Wu, the, the only woman in the history of China to rule all of China. And actually she had even her own dynasty. And I can imagine these two individuals having this different view of experience. So often, the way we get a different view of experience is from the outside in some way. And how wonderful that they could be situated differently to hand this down to us, to allow it to have the momentum that it's had. So we have Indra's, Indra's net, this quality of interdependence. It's very simple. Actually, John Muir put it well. He said, when you, when you try to pick out anything by itself, you find it hitched to everything else in the universe. <laughs> That's Indra's net. And a, a way to get a, a more of a sense of interdependence, and really I want you to think back to also all of, all of what Susie was talking about. I'm really just kind of reviewing Susie's talk on this. But again, just to, uh, to kind of uh, reinforce this, to see that interdependence is different. You could say it's the opposite of independence. So I want to talk about what independence is because that will clarify what interdependence is. So let me give an example of independence and how what a common perception it is, which again, we've just been going over this, but it's great to review this stuff. For example, here you are at IMS and maybe you came from Canada or New York or Boston or Connecticut and you find yourself here at IMS, and then sometimes you find yourself here in the meditation hall. Sometimes you find yourself in the dining hall. Sometimes you find yourself walking back to your room. Sometimes maybe you've had a good day on retreat or a bad day on retreat. And tomorrow, tomorrow you'll probably going, be going back somewhere, home, maybe to Canada or New York or Connecticut. And there's this feeling sense that here I am, I'm this independent me being that moves about in this world. It feels like this. 
I find myself affected by this world, but here I am, and I'm, I'm, I have this relationship with others in the world, but I'm the same person. And we've been speaking about this again and again, this, this idea that, oh, I'm a fixed, there's this fixed sense of self behind experience. And interdependence is, is not that. It's seeing that everything is empty in essence. There's no inherent existence, and everything's co-arising, dependently originated like this Indra's net, or what Fazang talks about is the, the quality of, well, let's take the example of this, that another example is that we have, for example, this conventional thing called a wall and a floor. And they co-arise to create this building. And just to quickly fit it into this not one, not two, this, this, you wouldn't say that this building, you wouldn't say that... Um, not one, the, in the sense that the wall is not the same as the building, and the floor is not the same as the building, and the floor is not the same as the wall. We wouldn't say that they're all the same thing. But they're not two either, because they co-arise to create a building. They're, they dependently arise. And part of interdependence that also Susie had gone over and then uh, really ties into what Sally was sharing with us this morning is as a result of that, if we're if there is this sense of Indra's net, of everything connected in such a way. As Susie was mentioning, what you do matters. Just that simple thing ties in so well with what Guy was speaking to us about last night. Maybe one example of this and then I'll I'll get into another thing just because I find it so striking. This comes from one of the Pali discourses. And, and I want to point out, I'm, I'm sharing with you a story from a different time and culture that in some ways I, I feel like when I speak it now might gain new meaning when told or in this present context. But it really spans back to the, the, the wisdom that we find arising from early Buddhism. This is the Buddha describing how things unfold. He says, when the people of the towns and countryside are unskillful or unwholesome, remember we just went over that, don't have much skill. The sun and the moon proceed off course. When the constellations and the stars, when the sun and the moon proceed off course, the constellations and the stars proceed off course. And when the constellations and the stars proceed off course, day and night proceed off course. The months and fortnights proceed off course. The season and years proceed off course. And when the seasons and years proceed off course, the winds blow off course and at random. And when the wind blows off course and at random, the deities become upset. When the deities are upset, sufficient rain does not fall. And when sufficient rain does not fall, the crops ripen irregularly. When the people of the towns and the countryside are skillful, wholesome, the sun and the moon proceed on course. When the sun and the moon proceed on course, the constellations proceed on course. The months and fortnights proceed on course. The season Seasons and years proceed on course. And when the seasons and years proceed on course, the winds blow on course independently. 
When the blow, winds blow on course independently, the deities become do not become upset. And when the deities are not upset, sufficient rain falls. And when sufficient rain falls, the crops ripen in season. And when people eat crops that ripen in season, they become long-lived, beautiful, strong, and healthy. Important words for our times, don't you think? And this other aspect of Indra's net of interdependence that Susie shared with us. As I was saying, not one, not two, and I gave you this example of not one. The walls and the entire building, they're not one, they're not the same thing. But they're actually not really two because they're interrelated. There can't be a building without the walls. There can't be a building without the floor. They're not really the same. They're not one, but not really two either because they're, they co-arise, they're interdependent. All the plants out there, the trees and the grasses, and especially the plants in the ocean, we're not the same as all those plants, are we? Not one. You wouldn't really want to say that. That's, that's a little bit inaccurate. But not two either. We wouldn't live very long without all the oxygen that happens, that they give us from of how they process carbon dioxide. So all the living creatures out there, all the, really the plants, not one, not two. All the people around you in this room, not really one, but not two. The people that pick your food and pass your laws, not one, but definitely not two either. What I love about not one and not two is it doesn't really give me an answer. <laughs> but it gives me a way to stay on the bike. I find this sense of not one, not two can be so helpful for tricky situations to get a, get a different sense of what it is to move forward. So I wanna just say a little bit more about this not one, not two, that may or may not be helpful. Not one. Sometimes I think that the, the best place to start with uh, not one is not so much that the experience is different, that things are different from one another, things are different for one another. It's a place that things are different from one another, but also different for one another. This building was created by the difference, the difference between the walls and the floor and the ceiling. The plants are different than us. 
They create oxygen. We create carbon dioxide. We co-arise in that way. So important, this quality of difference for, to actually open up to difference. Difference for each other. All of this difference between us can be so important in the ecological sense, you could say, just as the ecological sense of plants and us. And I have to admit, it's so much easier to talk about than to engage in. Maybe one example of this. You know, diversity is the hip thing these days. You know, all kinds of companies and institutions really value this thing of diversity. It's, it's important. It's tricky because sometimes uh, diversity can be more this sense of diversity from each other, the difference between each other rather than difference for each other. Oh, it'd be so great to have difference in our community, in our place that we work, in our schools, in our educational system. Be so great, as long as they're not too much not like me. As long as they follow my culture. That's the kind of difference I want. I like difference as long as they think similarly to me, do things the way I like to do things. Then I can feel good about myself too. I'm all for diversity. <laughs> it doesn't work that way, does it? What it would be like to open up to a di difference for, to see that the, the air that I breathe depends upon it. And to actually get that, that the air that I breathe depends upon difference. And not to understand that could be incredibly harmful. And it gives a whole different sense of what difference is about, what diversity is about. It's not just about being nice, it's about being able to breathe. And at the same time, there is a place for a difference from, isn't there? That this, this Indra's net is just not about mere relativism or nihilism. There are values that we, we share together, or at least discuss together. For example, the value of non-harming. There are different values out there other than non-harming. Interdependence doesn't mean that there's not some kind of valuing or being willing to differ and sometimes the willingness to strongly differ around certain values. But it's how we do that, how we engage in such conversations. So not one, difference for and difference from. Both, both important. Maybe just a side note around this difference. Sometimes I, I always like to ask myself this question of, you know, how am I navigating difference? How do I navigate difference? And for some reason, this started, this started to become a theme when I was riding airplanes. 
So there was this this thing that kept on happening when I was uh, uh, taking flights for a while. Let's die down a little bit. Is that so often I would be sitting next to someone that would have very very different viewpoints than me, and um, and here we are sitting next to each other talking. And once we got past the um, them understanding that I wasn't going to take Jesus as my savior, then we could start to have a little conversation. <laughs> and and I would see this, you know, so so challenging sometimes, some of the, the difference differences. Oh, okay, difference for. Oh, this is this is challenging. But also difference from. There's the values here. How do I navigate difference? And the the way that I could stay on the bike, because sometimes it's tricky for me. I can I can be kind of rigid in my views, that's for sure. You know, especially when I'm meeting somebody that has different views than me. Just to remember, the way, the way I stay on the bike is just to connect with the bike, just to stay connected. Can I remember just to connect, just to be present and to go from there? And to remember not to know, I don't know, to remain open. So I can get a different feeling sense of what it is to, to navigate a difference, especially differences that are difficult for me to navigate especially around things like political views or social views. How do you navigate difference, really? And asking yourself that honestly. To me, there's something so so juicy about this practice around this, and especially about this not two, not one. It fits so well with this question of how you navigate difference in the places where it's challenging, the differences that you don't want in your life. How do you skillfully navigate that. Okay, but not one, right? Not one. There is difference. But not two either. I understand not two. Not one, not two. And I'd like to share with you a part of a poem, probably a poem that most of you know. I, I, I find that it's, it's such a the poem to describe not to in a skillful way. And it's a, a poem by uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, Please Call Me By My True Names. And I'd like to share with you, not all of it, but an excerpt of it. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is alive. I'm a mayfly metamorphosing, metamorphizing on the surface of the river. I am the bird that swoops down to swallow the mayfly. I am a frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I am the grass snake that silently feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as, bam- as a bamboo stick. And I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo, Politburo with plenty of power in my hands, and I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labor camp. 
My joy is like spring, so warm, it makes flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and laughter at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true name so I can wake up and the door of my heart could be left open, the door of compassion. Definitely not one, but really so essential to see that also not two. And actually, I think it's from this poem, you know, he refers back to this poem where, where Thich Nhat Hanh is talking about his four, 14 guidelines for um, really the, I can't remember the, the, this, uh, this order of interbeing, these ethical guidelines. And he explains in one of these guidelines. A variety of interdependent causes has created the existence of the pirate. The responsibility is not solely his or his family's, but it is also society's. Each of us shares the responsibility for the presence of pirates. Meditating on dependent origination, or you could say interdependence, and looking with compassionate eyes helps us see our duty and responsibility to suffering beings. The purpose of meditation is to see and to hear. The eyes of compassion are also the eyes of understanding. Compassion is the sweet water that springs forth from the source of understanding. To practice looking deeply is the basic medicine for anger and hatred. So not one. Difference is very important. And understanding difference is important, but also not to. We dependently arise. This is how I understand the other is not to. It's the gateway to compassion as as Sally so beautifully shared with us this morning. And this is how I can remain. I, I, I actually don't know. I don't know the answer to all these difficult questions out there. I don't know how to navigate that world out there. I have no idea. But I know there's something powerful about beginning on this bike, beginning on this path and continuing.
So, so may our practice here on this retreat lead to the liberation of all beings. Thank you. I'll just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.